The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. And we're in. We're in. Welcome to Mystery Team Inc., the podcast where we scour the dark parts of the internet so you don't have to. (laughs) Nice. Thanks. I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. And we're Mystery Team Inc. But for legal reasons, I have to tell you, we're not incorporated. I have a lot of top of show business. Okay, I'm ready. First, you guys, uh, thank you for putting us on the Spotify trending podcast chart. Yeah. We were on the Spotify trending podcast chart for like three days last week, and um, that was super cool. So thank you for listening. And uh, if you came from TikTok, I know we have a lot of new listeners, so welcome. Um, yeah, welcome to the chaos. Thank you for blowing up our TikTok, because that's also cool. We appreciate you. Um, update on our question from last episode about what kids in other states learn about instead of the gold rush. Oh, God. <laughs> Remember when we were like, Eureka, like you, you may, may not know that, because I don't think anyone else has to do a five-week-long unit on the gold rush where they yes. dress up as Clementine is the thing I'm thinking of. Um, you know what's so funny is that I was the one who dressed up as Clementine. <gasps> were you really? I was my class's Clementine. You lucky dog. You know why? It's because your name was at the end of the alphabet, because those na- the uh, parts were assigned alphabetically. Oh, it wasn't because I'm wildly <laughs> talented. <laughs> both no whatever well i've spent my whole life thinking that it was because (laughs) i'm i'm so sorry talented so i guess all right i'm gonna go (laughs) okay i have a lot of thinking to do (laughs) okay so i have an update oh and also first i should give a content warning apparently some people don't like it when we giggle a lot so if you don't like giggling I just want to need to warn you that this podcast is about the magic of friendship. So it features a lot of giggling. So I have an update on our gold rush question um, from Madeline, aka Maddie, um, Mm -hmm. who said, okay, I'm listening to the second half of Bell Gunnis and I can confirm that Washington and Oregon schools teach you about the Oregon Trail with like deep cosplay and only briefly cover the gold rush. (laughs) <laughs> Similarly, <laughs> I have a theory that the Boston Tea Party and also the Pilgrim story are much bigger productions in the Northeast. Also related, every child in Oklahoma is in a production of Oklahoma. I ask every person I meet who's from Oklahoma if they were in a production of Oklahoma, and so far I have a 100% success rate with that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Maddie travels a lot for work, and so I genuinely believe that she has been in like ho- like Hilton conference rooms, just asking everyone. <laughs> oh, she you're meets. from Oklahoma? Were you in a production of Oklahoma? <laughs> right. That's exactly. so interesting. So that's a quick update there. Um, I have a collect a corrections corner from our Zodiac TikTok where Kayla failed to mention that Republican Senator Ted Cruz is the Zodiac killer, allegedly. Um, I'm going to do a follow-up of the most popular theories, so okay, don't great. even worry about it. Perfect. Um, and I have a quick story to share with you from one of our listeners who listened to the National Treasure episode and wanted to share a story with us. So, I'm so excited. This is from Catherine, with her, shared with her permission. So she said, okay, so imagine. Junior year of college, 2016, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Catherine and Ryan have been dating for less than a month and have decided to skip class and hang out because love. While skipping class and watching National Treasure on a Tuesday afternoon, they decide to go steal the Declaration of Independence as a bit, but neither of them want to wimp out in the face of brand new love or whatever. We left at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday, didn't tell either of our parents, and drove 13 hours through the night, got to see a lot of fun gas stations in Appalachia, and ended up like two hours outside of D.C., and my mom called and says, hey, so I heard you're in Virginia. Maybe you could let me know next time you leave the state. Also, come home now. Love you. Bye. Um, Ryan got the same call a little while later and we turned around and headed back to Arkansas but now we have a fun story also we actually made it to DC last January and if you haven't been the National Archives Museum kind of sucks just (laughs) (laughs) brutal I was like that is the kind of love I mean it sounds like our friendship like when we uh, you lost your job so we went to Roswell (laughs) no 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 tell it like it is I got fucking fired after your job was taken over by tyrants. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I didn't get fired because I did anything wrong. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. Kayla's got fired after her job was taken over by tyrants. And then we decided to drive to New Mexico. And we um, survived. We did. Did not steal any colonial documents. Yet. Either. <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, Maybe okay. we can team up with Catherine and Ryan. Yeah, guys, if you want to do... With our if you, powers combined. <laughs> if you guys want to go in on one last job. <laughs> <laughs> one more and then I'm out. Yeah, exactly. I think that's all of my top of show business. Do you have any other thoughts about that? I just want to crack, crack the ceremonial crack the beers to our new listeners and followers. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Here's to all of our new friends. Clink, 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 clink. <laughs> great job thank you i'm getting better award-winning sound design (laughs) one more thing that i always forget to say content warning uh this is explicit (laughs) uh we say lots of bad words and you should know that up front yeah we have a lot of opinions (laughs) i think we also need to start saying because now that people are coming from TikTok that like this is for entertainment purposes only we are not medical professionals correct so yeah this is for entertainment purposes only we just retell stories that we find interesting by doing countless hours of research and then we come here and giggle about it (laughs) (laughs) that's exactly what we do (laughs) 
So if you if I don't have any more business, if you don't have any more business, are you mm-hmm. ready for a mystery? <laughs> yes. All right, lay it on me. Okay, so I just want to say that this, I have had this. I have like nine notes in my phone called like mysteries. <laughs> this one is on every single one. Great. I have, I think I've had it maybe since like the third month that we were doing the podcast. I've been like waiting to do it. And now I'm that we thrilled. split up the work, I, it, I can finally do it justice. I'm so excited. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Today I have for you the life and death of Natalie Wood. (gasps) Oh my God. Yes. You know what's so weird is I was literally, I don't know if maybe someone said something to me about her the other day, but I think someone said something about her to me and I was thinking, oh, that would be a good one to do on the podcast. (laughs) And I'm, here we are. Yeah, I'm so ready. Tell me. <sighs> okay. So a lot of credit for my research goes to a book called Natalie Wood, The Complete Biography, written by Suzanne Finstad. Um, I also read a book called Coroner by Dr. Thomas Noguchi, who was the um, head Los Angeles coroner when this happened. Okay. And then... Um, a lot of Googling. <laughs> okay, so definitely cite the internet as a source. So I'm citing the internet as a source. There's a Vanity Fair article that I read. I'll put it in the show notes because that one's really good. Okay. Hooray. So Natalie Wood was born Natasha Zakharenko in 1938 in San Francisco to two Russian immigrant parents named Maria and Nikolai. Um, she, quote, unquote, grew up in Santa Rosa, just outside San Francisco. And I say, quote, unquote, because that her childhood did not last long. Um, her father played the balalaika and he hated communists and he hated Hollywood. And her mother loved everything about Hollywood. And to her, like being a star was like being a god. Mm-hmm. Um. Maria was also incredibly superstitious, and she told Natalie and her younger sister, Lana, like starting when they were born, basically, that while she was pregnant with Natalie, a gypsy, and that is the word they use, Mm -hmm. uh, told her that she would have a daughter who would be a world-famous superstar, but she also warned her that she foresaw a drowning. (gasps) What? And to stay away from dark water. Oh, my God. Lord. I know. So Maria took this super seriously and she like drilled it into Natalie's brain from basically birth that like she was to stay away from dark water. Wow. And Natalie never learned how to swim and was like notoriously oh afraid of water. Oh my God. It's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. Isn't that bananas? Wow. that it, It's just like so such a loaded metaphor. Like it's keeping so- her away from the water because she was afraid she would drown is... Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. Okay. Go on. So, in the summer of 1942, a film called Happy Land was shooting in Santa Rosa, and Maria heard that the director, Irving Pinchel, was looking for a little girl as an extra. So, she dragged Natasha to set. And when there was like a lull in the action, she pushed Natasha over and she was like, go sit on his lap and sing him a Russian song. And she did. And he was like, 
so charmed. And he cast her as the little girl who dropped her ice cream cone in the beginning of the film. And that's where it all started. So two years later, he invited her to audition for the lead role in his next film. And in the scene, Natasha was supposed to cry, but she was five years old. So she either couldn't do it or she didn't want to do it because she was five. So her mom pulled her aside and in front of her pulled the wings off of a butterfly. Oh, my God. And Natalie began to cry and she booked the role. I'm sorry, but like the... Like, her early life is just, like, metaphor after metaphor. Like, why is it so... Yeah. It's, like, like hauntingly poetic. Yeah. It's, like, a (laughs) heavy-handed narrative fiction. Like, if someone wrote that, I would be, like, too much. It's too much. So the role she booked was she was playing a little Austrian orphan in a movie called Tomorrow is Forever, and she was starring opposite Orson Welles. Tomorrow is forever sounds like. (laughs) Listen, I cannot tell you how much I laughed at the names of movies. Because it was all like 1940s. They're in pictures. And like the names are just like It's probably a classic film, but it does sound like something that you would like. Like it sounds like a 30 Rock joke. You know, like it it sounds like. It sounds like a movie like Jenna would do. Yes, correct. (laughs) It's basically the rural juror. Yeah, it's like she, yeah, she does like a Groundhog Day style film where she lives the same day over and over again. And it's called Tomorrow is Forever. Incredible. So Maria moved their family to L.A. and they changed Natasha's name to Natalie Wood. And at this point, after Tomorrow is Forever, she was like, Famous, but she wasn't Natalie Wood famous. Um, but then she booked Miracle on 34th Street and she just like skyrocketed and became like an international superstar, basically. And at this point, Maria went full momager. Mm-hmm. And she put an incredible amount of pressure on Natalie to be like perfect and never show weakness and like be the perfect little employee so she kept working because she was also now the breadwinner for the family um and so natalie at age whatever six she would show up to set she would not only know her lines but she would know everybody else's lines and she became known as one take natalie because she would nail everything in the first take When she was 11, Natalie was shooting a scene in a movie where she had to, like, cross this bridge over a rushing river. And it was rigged to collapse once she crossed. But this special effects guy, like, bungled his cue. And it collapsed while she was still (gasps) on it. And so she fell. And they I was watching a documentary and they showed footage of it. And so she falls off of this bridge and, like, hooks her arm around one of the pieces of wood and there's just like rushing water coming at her and she's just this tiny little thing nobody came to help her and she's just like she finally like drags herself up onto the other side of the river and they just like kept filming it's like horrifying yeah she was not treated well so she broke her wrist when she fell 
And her mom was like, suck it up, don't say anything, keep shooting, finish the scene. Um, because she was like, if you show weakness, they won't hire you anymore, and your career will disappear. Um, and they never went to a doctor, so her wrist healed all wonky, and she had, like, Aww. a little bump on it. And from then on, she always wore, like, a chunky bracelet to conceal it, and that's why you always see her with oh. big bangles. So by 16, Natalie had made over 20 films, and she started looking for ways to rebel. Um, her mother had always chosen the roles that she accepted, uh, and Natalie was like, mm, my fucking turn. Uh, she was, like, looking to, like, make the near impossible transition from child star to, like, actor. And she came upon the script for Rebel Without a Cause. And she was like, that, I want this. I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna play Judy. So she began an affair with the director, Nick Ray, and... Because so she would like follow him around. She would like go to because ever all the movie stars were under studio contract at this time. So she would just like hang out at the Warner Brothers lot all day every day. Mm-hmm. So she would like follow him around at Warner Brothers and with like carrying her script. Like, hey, I have thoughts. Like, I really, I, I want this part. I want this part. I want this part. And he was like, I don't know, maybe. Ugh. And so she started sleeping with him. Um. And finally, after months of, like, sleeping with him and, like, going to lunch with him and talking about the script and blah, 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 he was like, fine, you can screen test. So she screen tested. She tested with the supporting actor named Dennis Hopper because James Dean was in New York, and they became best friends. Um, but Nick Ray was like, she's too thin, she's too small, her voice is too childish, She's too innocent. Like, it won't work. Uh-huh. And he kept basically dangling this carrot on a string in front of her for months. And they kept seeing each other. But he was also sleeping with other actresses that were testing for the role. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, and while this was going on, while she was waiting to hear about Judy, she was asked to audition for an unnamed very famous actor who was one of the first actors to have their own production company and this either happened at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel or the Chateau Marmont I've heard both but either way Natalie went to a hotel to audition for this guy and he brutally raped her my heart to the point where she was like physically injured um she told all of her closest friends what happened including Dennis Hopper and she was like I can't tell my mom because she's going to just, like, shit all over me and tell me to suck it up. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what she did. No. So she's being jerked around by Nick Ray about this role, and she's just been completely destroyed. So she went out with Hopper and their, like, main group of friends. She, 16 at the time. Um, God, they went so to, young. So young. They were acting like they were in their mid-20s. Yeah, I mean, she's literally a child. Yeah, and because they were, she was so famous, nobody said anything. So they went to this restaurant, and they drank from mid-afternoon until the restaurant closed at 11. Again, teenagers, nobody said anything. They got into uh, Dennis's car, 
And Natalie was like fucking furious because Nick Ray was supposed to call her that night. So they went to a liquor store and they bought whiskey and they drove up Laurel Canyon and parked at an overlook on Mulholland. So they were drinking at the overlook and it started raining and Natalie was puking everywhere and Dennis Hopper could barely walk and one of their friends was passed out in the back seat. So, of course, they got back in the car to drive mm. to where they had left Natalie's car at the restaurant. And on Laurel Canyon, some from what I understand, someone else going the opposite way like swerved into their lane and hit them head on. Oh god. And their car flipped and Natalie was thrown into the middle of the street. Oh my god. And she was unconscious and they were were all taken to the hospital. Natalie was in the worst shape. Everybody else was kind of like just a little bit battered and bruised. And um, they had the brilliant idea to call Nick Ray in to get them because he was like a cool uncle. He showed up and Natalie, like so groggy, she was like, Nick, do you know what the doctor just called me? He called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. And on his way out, Nick said to the doctor, take good care of that patient. She's the star of my next film. So she proved to him that she could do it by almost dying in a car crash. Actually, this is something that we don't talk about enough, but, like, it's still a huge problem today is, like, the toxic culture in filmmaking that leads to shit like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's also, I mean, I could talk about this forever, but it's this idea of instead of, like, actors looking at parts as jobs, you're kind of forced to look at it as, like, a, a big get, like you're being honored to be chosen. Yeah, And it changes the way you behave while trying to, like, get a role. Because it seems like it may – the producers and the casting people kind of make it seem like they're giving you a gift. Like, they've deemed you worthy of this gift. Right. Like, it's it's upsetting to me. (laughs) Yes. Me too. So, she got the part and was nominated for her first Oscar for that role. Then on her 18th birthday, the studio set her up on a date with a young actor named Robert Wagner, who was, like, working but hadn't really made the jump to, like, superstar yet. Mm-hmm. Um, he started working when he was 19, and he described his early roles as, like, the male ingenue. Mm-hmm. And he was always, like, the pretty boy next door in a supporting role to, like, an older, big star like the Robert Pecks of the world, basically. Mm -hmm. So he had an exclusive contract with Fox and they started putting him in starring roles in features, but none of them like really took off. So they set him up with Natalie Wood. Um, She was 18 and he was 26. They went to a press screening of his newest film, The Mountain. At this point, Natalie was engaged to a man that her mother and the studio did not approve of. They did not like him. And but she went on this date anyway. And when the night ended, she was like, I don't know. He was like pretty boring. Um, But the studio and her mother kept pushing until she broke off her engagement. No, I hate this. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So then for the next five months, she dated Elvis Presley, Nikki Hilton, Frank Sinatra and a bunch of other dudes of like that caliber. But it was nothing serious. Like she she did not like Elvis. Sure. At all. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then five months after their, like, horrible first date, Natalie ran into Robert, who 
I'm going to call RJ from now on because that's what people call him. And he invited her out on another date onto his boat. And she agreed despite the fact that she was terrified of water. And then they like actually hit it off. And they dated for a few months. He went to stay with Natalie and her mother and her little sister at a resort in the Adirondacks while Natalie was shooting a movie. And then they celebrated their return to L.A. with an engagement. And they got married in December of 1957. And they became Hollywood's it couple. Like, so the people in the documentaries that I was watching compared them to Brangelina. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is like kind of, there really hasn't been anything else. I can't think of any couples other than Natalie Wood and RJ and Brangelina that kind of fall into that category. Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt, I guess. I was just going to say. <laughs> I was going to say. I literally was just going to say, um, yeah, Brad and Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> oh, Justin and Brittany. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So it's that caliber of couple. Sure. Um, and Natalie was like, wanted so badly for this to just be like a perfect Hollywood marriage and they bought this beautiful house in Beverly Hills and they decorated it like fuck it was like Greco-Roman nonsense sure and they would throw these crazy parties with like crazy guest lists um and they would bring like crazy famous people on their yacht and they were constantly being photographed together like they basically lived their lives in the public eye And at the same time, Natalie's career was, like, still blowing up. She went to New York to study at the Actors Studio, and Elia Kazan saw her there and cast her in this movie called Splendor in the Grass. Mm. Um, And that is the same year that she shot West Side Story. Mm -hmm. So things were going very well, or so it seemed. Well, it wouldn't be on this this fucking podcast if it was going well. And everything worked out great, and they're still happily married with three children. The end. Buckle the buck up. We don't know. So in 1961, RJ was working on a film called Sail a Crooked Ship, which is, again. That sounds like an adaptation of a Gilbert and Sullivan musical. (laughs) 100%. It really does. So uh, he was shooting. Natalie was in talks to star in a film called Lovers Must Learn. And they had a plan to go. I know. (laughs) I'm telling you (laughs) every single one. Oh, my God. (laughs) And they had a plan to go to Italy after RJ's movie wrapped. But then uh, that June, the day after Sailor Crooked Ship wrapped, Natalie woke up in the middle of the night. And RJ was not in bed. And she went looking for him and found him in their house sleeping with another man. Yeah. What year was it? 1958 or something? 61. Okay. Yeah. That totally checks out. Yeah. But why would you do it in your in the house? Why wouldn't you like go somewhere else? Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie. Maggie. Why? Why would you have a homosexual affair? <laughs> With another man in the 60s in your in own house. In my house with my wife? With your wife who is, there. Who is international movie star. I'm Natalie Wood. Maggie, why would I you, w- Maggie, 
cheat on your wife, international superstar Natalie Wood, in 1961 in your own house. With because man. lovers must learn. <laughs> Brought it back around. That's what we call a short-term callback. <laughs> How did we go from movies called, like, Lovers Must Learn to, like, Hot Tub Time Machine? <laughs> like, Lovers Must Learn tells me nothing about the film, but I it's a it's a whole vibe, though, so I know what I'm getting, but, like... It's a vibe. And then Hot Tub Time Machine... What is Hot is Tub Time Machine about? A Hot Tub Time Machine. It's kind of like being punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> By Seth Rogen. By... <laughs> While someone, while Seth Rogen screams, I'm punching you in the face. Yeah, exactly. I don't even know if that's a Seth Rogen movie. It just feels like it is. Okay, so. Did you know it had a $36 million budget? <laughs> Hot tubs are like $1,000 on Amazon. <laughs> Amazon. You, yeah. would you buy a hot tub off of Amazon or would you go Oops. to like one of those hot tub stores on Sepulveda Boulevard? <laughs> <laughs> I would go to a Lamps Plus. <laughs> Where I know they sell hot tubs. You wouldn't go to like Pool Supplies, Inc. That has like the... <gasps> Leslie's Pool Supplies? Yes. That has like the slide on the roof. Yeah, Leslie's. Yeah. Yeah. That was my favorite place as a child. <laughs> me, me too, I feel. This is probably why we are best friends. We always, <laughs> we always got to get a new rubber torpedo. I think that like people think it's like unique to a small town thing to have like a weird favorite place. But like I genuinely as someone who grew up in L.A., like us, like kind of both in the back of my mind, having Leslie's pool supplies as our favorite place just <laughs> proves that that is not like that's can happen <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> I love Leslie's pool It's going to be supplies. a weird girl summer. <laughs> can we go to Leslie's pool supplies? I miss the smell. Yeah, if it's open. It smells like chlorine. But yeah, we can yeah. go for sure. But it was like... No, I know. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> it smelled like summer. Yeah, it did. That's why we're going to have a hot girl summer, or sorry, a weird girl summer at the Leslie's Pool Supplies. Yeah, let's not let's not put that pressure on ourselves to be hot as well. No, no, no. Weird girl summer. You guys, start this with us. Weird girl summer. <laughs> All right, are you ready? What were we talking about? Tragic, a tragic death? Yes, yeah. Okay, great. Just... <laughs> Just the tragic life of a superstar. Okay, so. Okay, I'm listening. She found him with another man. Oh, God, I forgot. I, yeah. That's right. That's how we got to what Leslie's a horrible pool thing supplies. That was. <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah. Wow. So okay. Natalie went into absolute hysterics. She ran to their home bar and squeezed a crystal glass until it shattered in her hand. Oh, shit. That's Which so metal. So metal. <laughs> that's so fucking metal. Um, and then she went to her mom's house, which I believe was on Valley Vista. That's like where I live. <laughs> because I think. Growing up. I know. Valley. Yeah. Valley Vista, I think, was like the hot place to have property in the valley. So she fled to her mother's house on the lovely Valley Vista. Mm-hmm. And. In her distress, she swallowed a lot of sleeping pills. She was taken to the hospital and had her stomach pumped and she was fine. And her family says that she wasn't trying to kill herself. She was just like in distress and like wasn't paying attention and took too many. Yeah. Unknown if that's true. Right. So she 
took an unpaid leave of absence did that, from... Did that piece of information come from the woman who pulled the wings off of a butterfly in front of her <laughs> to make her cry? Uh, no, it came so, from her sister. Questionable. No, it came from her sister. But okay. you'll see, I'm you'll <laughs> see like I'll we're I'll I'll talk I'll touch on that later. She took an unpaid leave of absence from work and just like completely disappeared from public life. She started going to therapy every day. And RJ went to Europe and started doing therapy as well every day and he was like working on films over there whatever, it doesn't matter. In July, also when I was reading this, I was like astounded to see dates because it's like I would think that a year later she started dating again, but it's like less than a month. Oh, what? Yeah. So he cheated on her in June and then in July she started dating Warren Beatty. I mean, I guess so, do you at that point. Yeah. Also, keep in mind, she's fucking, what, 20 years old? Yeah. So and I, her husband, had a homosexual affair (laughs) in our house. So in 1961. Yeah. I don't blame her. I don't blame her either. I would go straight into the arms of Warren Beatty. (laughs) (laughs) So and who among us hasn't? (laughs) Hasn't gone straight into the arms of Warren Beatty. (laughs) Yeah. Only a lucky few. So. She started dating Warren Beatty in July. They dated on and off for a while. Natalie started 1962 with an Oscar nomination for Splendor in the Grass, and she was cast as Gypsy Rosalie in Gypsy. Mm-hmm. Um, after the Oscars that year, uh, that year West Side Story swept, but Natalie lost the Oscar to Sophia Loren. Mm-hmm. Second Oscar nom, second lo- loss. And Natalie officially divorced RJ. Um, she went to New York to shoot a film called <laughs> Love with a Proper Stranger. Mm-hmm. And by the time she had wrapped that movie, she broke up with Warren Beatty. She returned to L.A. and immediately started dating Arthur Lowe Jr., heir to the Lowe Theater fortune. Mm. R.J. married a former actress named Marion Marshall two days after Natalie's 25th birthday. Then Natalie became engaged to Arthur Lowe. And nobody thought she liked him. She was didn't really even try to pretend she liked him. But... <laughs> <laughs> but RJ was married and she was like, I, what else do I do? So she, that year she shot a movie called Sex and the Single Girl, which I, from what I can tell was basically Sex and the City. She was nominated for her third Oscar for that role. She lost that again. And then a week after she lost the Oscar, she broke off her engagement. And then five days after she broke off the engagement, Natalie was at um, La Scala in Beverly Hills, which was her and RJ's place. And RJ burst in and was like, I'm a father! And like started uh-huh. handing out cigars to everyone. And I was just like, this poor woman. What the fuck? Cannot catch a fucking break. Natalie then went on to have a string of failed relationships. She also attempted suicide uh, two or three more times. 
Um, and the people in her life seemed to disagree wildly on whether they were genuine attempts or just like cries for help or cries for attention. Um, it seems that people are unwilling to believe that they were genuine attempts because from what I've seen, she was very impacted by the people around her. And I don't think anyone wants to really admit to themselves how they treated her. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And how toxic their attitudes are. Yeah. And it's everybody in her life. Yeah. Um, except for one person who was her childhood friend, Ed, who they were like best friends when they were very little. And then he, when she moved to LA, they continued to be friends. And they just like were friends for their whole life. And she would like go back to Santa Rosa and see him. And it was <laughs> so cute. Only person who didn't exploit her. In 1965, Natalie was filming a movie called Penelope that she hated working on so much that she would break out in hives. Mm. Um, and she finished the film and paid $750,000 to get out of her contract with Warner Brothers. She fired her managers, her agents, and her pub- publicity team. Um, she had just turned 28, and she had at that point made 40 films and been in over 30 TV shows. Wow. And she just fucking dropped everybody. Yeah. Um, She took some time off. And then in 1966, she signed with CMA. Uh, But she her real focus was on finding a husband. And that September, she was introduced to British producer and agent Richard Gregson. And Natalie and Richard dated for two years while they waited for Gregson's divorce to go through. And in those two years, she did not work at all. And she said it was the only time in her life since she was five years old that she didn't feel a compulsive need to work. Oh. Which I think is great. She, like, went to cooking class and she, like, learned all these skills and languages and, like, enriched her life. That's amazing. Um, So they got married in May of 1969. And then in early 1970, Natalie announced that she was pregnant and that she was officially semi-retiring to devote herself to motherhood. Yay. And her daughter, Natasha, was born on September 29th. And she said that that was the happiest moment of her life. Oh. And I cannot handle that she named her child Natasha. I love that. I was just thinking. I know. People always name their uh, sons after the father. And, like, you don't hear as much anymore about naming the daughter after the mother. Yeah. They also, it's, like, basically the analysis of this. And this is, Natalie said it herself, was that, like, she wanted to give Natasha the childhood that she, as Natasha, never had. Yeah, of course. It Which makes perfect sense. Which is fucking heartbreaking. Yes. Like, she gave her her real name. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. My heart. Yeah. So in 1971, months after Natasha was born, Natalie walked in on Grayson having an affair with her secretary. Her secretary? Her secretary. Was it in their house again? Yes. No. Was it really? Yes. What What was anybody doing? It's like, were there no other rooms in the world? Oh, my God. Like, did they have object permanence issues where they would get in their house and they'd be like, these are the only rooms now. Come back to my house. My wife is there. (laughs) Like, what? 
What are you doing? <laughs> Come back to my house, baby. We won't be bothered, but uh, my wife is there. Yeah. <laughs> she does live there. She is there full time. She is there all the time. She um, is a stay at home mom. Yeah. <laughs> she is famously semi retired and a stay at home mother. But we should be in the clear. God damn it. As long as she doesn't open doors, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> she hasn't okay. figured out how to open doors yet. So <laughs> it's so ridiculous. So she filed for divorce from Gregson that night. Good. Bye. Yeah. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Is that why they say that? (laughs) Maybe, actually. (laughs) I don't think it is, but yeah. After she divorced Gregson, Natalie had a chance encounter with RJ. What? Did they go to... Were they both at Casa Vega again? Like, what was the problem? Well, whatever Valley restaurant they liked, where did they go? La Scala. Okay. Which my parents love. Is that why they ran into each other, though? Were they just both, <laughs> like, fancy meeting you here at our old booth at La Scala? <laughs> no. They were at a, they were both invited to a dinner party. Okay. Well, who's, okay, who fucked up that? Who's that? <laughs> who did that? That was bad. <laughs> who didn't think through that guest list? Yeah, correct. So, um, at that point, uh, that was like at the end of the year in December. After they ran into each other, RJ went to Natalie's house on Christmas and dropped off presents for her and Natasha. And, but he was, at that time, he was engaged to Frank Sinatra's 23 year old daughter, Tina. Mm-hmm. Of course. But then by January of 1972, the engagement was off and Natalie and RJ were back together. And Lana was like, what the fuck are you doing? And Natalie was like, listen, devil, you know, devil, you don't, you know? And Lana Mm. was like, oh, my God. (laughs) They got back together in January of 1972 and they got married a few months after that. Again. Again. So at this point, RJ had become a television star. He was working consistently in television. And then in 1979, he booked a starring role on the show Heart to Heart, which made him a household name. And it seems like their positions had switched. So RJ was now a superstar and Natalie was kind of, her career was kind of floundering. And... But I thought she wasn't even trying to be a career. She wasn't trying to be a career, but (laughs) she, so she, they had, um, (laughs) they had another child named Courtney and Natalie like stayed home and was a stay at home mom for a while. And then she started to get restless and she wanted to go back to work and she started trying to revive her career and she shot a few films that were like, you know, whatever. And she wanted something that would like really cement her comeback. And she found this sci-fi movie called Brainstorm that was being directed by the guy who did all of the special effects in 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. 
And it was she was starring opposite Christopher Walken, who mm. was 38 and fresh off of an Oscar win for a movie called Deer Hunter. And he was like the darling of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So she was like, this is it. She They shot it in uh, North Carolina. And the chemistry between Natalie and Walken on and off camera was like off the charts. And rumors started to swirl that they were having an affair. And the AD of that film 100% believes that they were. He is like convinced. Okay, so they're the Brangelina. Yes, now. So RJ and Natalie were like the Brad and Jen. Yes, that's exactly what it is. So here's my analysis of this affair rumor. It seems that everybody who was on set working on the movie is like, yes, 100% they were having an affair. And everybody who is like friends and family is like, she would never do that. And I'm like, I don't know. Kind of seems like maybe you've built her up to be this like perfect angel and you weren't there and you have no idea. And if anyone knows anything, it's the fucking AD. (laughs) That's true. That's always true. Also, it's just like such a common thing in true crime where it's just like the family is like, they would never. And then it's like, I don't know why. In my head, I just immediately went to like an SVU uh, cold open where Ice-T is like, so she like died strangling her boyfriend at this sex club. And then her fam, their family is like, she would never. But like, okay, well, then what? how did she die strangling her boyfriend at the BDSM sex club? <laughs> Mom. Mom. <laughs> like, yeah. So I don't know. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's it's really interesting to see who has what opinions about her life because um, it's very obvious why they have the opinions they have. Maybe not to them, but to me it is. So RJ had a jealous streak. There's a story that goes around that Natalie was shooting a movie with Warren Beatty before they started dating. And people started saying they were having an affair. And RJ was so jealous that he followed Warren home with a loaded gun in his car. Men are so exhausting. If, so if exhausting. She, if she was having an affair, at least she wasn't doing it in the fucking house, RJ. <laughs> if you're going to have an affair, I'd rather you do it in the house. <laughs> I'd rather you don't do it in the house. <laughs> like, fucking get off of your high horse, you yeah, butthole. It's, <laughs> he has a butthole. <laughs> He's such a butthole. Correct. So he was super jealous. And he actually uh, visited set a couple times, like flew across the country just to like keep eyes. And I know I people some people say like we don't know if it was like jealousy about her career getting back on track and him having to like recede back into the like Mr. Natalie Wood role or if it was because (laughs) of walk in. Probably a little bit of both. But anyway, he was not happy about it. And that Thanksgiving, so they had a tradition that every year on the weekend after Thanksgiving, they would go with their family onto their yacht called the Splendor and they would go to Catalina Island. That Thanksgiving, um, their kids decided to like stay with friends and Natalie invited Christopher Walken to come with them on their boat to Catalina Island. 
Um, originally, it was supposed to be Natalie, RJ, uh, Christopher Walken, and their friend Delphine Mann, I assume as a buffer, and um, she canceled. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, And the weather that weekend was supposed to be very bad, and multiple people warned them not to go because of the weather, including the captain, whose name is Dennis, either Davern or Davern. Okay. And he was like, or he said he called the multiple times, like, are you sure you want to go? Are you sure you want to go? It's going to be cold. It's going to be rainy. It's going to be choppy. It's not going to be fun. We shouldn't go. And they were like, we made the plan and we're going. So the Friday after Thanksgiving, RJ, Natalie, Christopher Walken, and Dennis Davern boarded the Splendor for Catalina. Natalie would be found dead Sunday morning. I think that we, that's a good place to take a break. <laughs> Okay, let's take a break, and then when we come yeah. back, more tragedy. <laughs> yes, chaotic, murky tragedy. More tragedy after this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. And we're back. <laughs> and we're back. Are you ready? Yes. So the details of this weekend in Catalina are famously murky. RJ and Christopher Walken gave two brief interviews and basically haven't said anything about it since. Um. Dennis Davern, the boat captain, when he was originally interviewed, had basically said what RJ and Christopher Walken said. But then he started to do this thing where over the years he would like come forward with like little pieces of the story, but for money. Mm. And then he no. wrote, yeah, yes. So I have trouble with him as a source. And then there are all these, like, basically guest star witnesses who, like, seem credible. But a lot of their accounts came, like, years after when the story had already been sensationalized. But then some of them are like, well, it's we came forward because the police never talked to us. So it's, like, all of... It's complicated. It's complicated. So we have to take everything with, like, several teaspoons of salt. <laughs> so... So what I'm about to present to you is a like patchwork account of the weekend from all these witnesses and it all the credit goes to the the book Natalie Wood the complete biography. This woman did like crazy crazy investigation and like talked to so many people and like pieced together kind of a timeline of the weekend. So here we go. So the crossing to Catalina was rough because the weather was terrible. And Davern says that as soon as they stepped on the boat, he could tell RJ was like in a bad mood and was like already jealous. Mm. Christopher Walken says that when they got on the boat, he had two Bloody Marys and immediately got super seasick. So he had to go lie down. And by the time he woke up, it was 5 p.m. and they were already moored off 
the shore from Avalon, which is the main touristy mm-hmm. town in Catalina, which you know because you spent your whole life there. I do know that. So then um, the three of them took the dinghy, which was named the Valiant, the Prince Valiant, after this terrible role that RJ played. Was the boat the Splendor named after Splendor in the Grass? Um, yes or no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have a word for that. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> well, sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. Okay. Um, so they took the dinghy to shore, and Dennis stayed behind to make dinner. Um, the th- uh, RJ, Natalie, and Christopher Walken drank all afternoon, and they ended at a place called El Galleon, which is a waterfront bar. They left the bar for the dock at about 10 p.m., and Dennis says that when they got back, RJ was even more irritated. Um, they drank more on the boat. Walken got seasick again and went to bed, and the other three had dinner without him. And then one of two things happened. Either the sea was rough and Natalie didn't want to spend the night on the boat, or RJ's behavior was getting so out of hand that Natalie didn't want to spend the night on the boat. Mm-hmm. So in his first statement, Christopher Walken didn't mention Friday night at all. In his second statement, he said that he heard a hubbub happening between Natalie and RJ. Natalie came into his room and said he wants to cross during the night and then left. Because I guess in some accounts they were talking about just going back to the mainland. Going home, yeah. Yeah. Um, Christopher Walken said then that after Natalie left, Dennis came in and asked him to intervene. And Walken said, never get involved in an argument between a man and his wife and went back to sleep. In his first statement, Dennis said explicitly that all four of them slept on the yacht Friday night, which police already knew was a lie because they had talked to the people in Avalon. So Mm -hmm. they pushed him further about it. And Dennis said that he would... He didn't want to answer, and he wanted to talk to RJ and an attorney. And then in his second statement, in the presence of RJ's lawyers, Dennis said that he took Natalie ashore and to act as her bodyguard at RJ's request. Which is interesting because RJ never said anything about Friday night. Either way, Natalie and Dennis took the dinghy and went back to shore where they spent the night in a motel. And the next morning, they went back to the boat, and everything seemed fine, and Natalie made breakfast, and everyone seemed happy, like the night before hadn't happened. And they moved the Splendor at 11.30 a.m. to Two Harbors, which is on the remote side of Catalina, and they moored near 50 to 70 other pleasure boats, which Mm -hmm. sounds like some Pinocchio shit. (laughs) So at around 2 p.m., Dennis and RJ were taking a nap and Natalie and Christopher Walken took the dinghy to shore and left a note like we're going to shore. And a little before four, RJ and Dennis woke up, found the note and went to shore and found Natalie and Walken drinking and just like having a blast and like giggling like they were on mystery teaming and like (laughs) (laughs) and super drunk. So RJ made a 7 p.m. dinner reservation, and then the group spent the next three hours drinking at the bar. 
And Dennis says that he saw a jealous rage like simmering in RJ and Natalie and Walken were like having so much fun and like talking about shooting brainstorm and like having all these inside jokes. And the so the manager of the restaurant, whose name is Don Whiting, seated the four of them at a very large table and noted that RJ seemed irritated with Natalie. Their original waitress, whose name is Christina Quinn, remembers that Natalie's mood was mercurial and she was like fussy about everything and like the lighting was wrong and the table was the wrong size and she didn't like the fish she ordered and she sent it back and then she didn't like it again and she was like, I'll just drink my dinner. So Christina went to her co-worker Michelle Molesky and like made her take over the table, <laughs> which that's so real. We've all done. Yes, correct. So Michelle says that there was definitely something going on at the table. Like the vibe was super weird. Don Whiting says that he saw RJ flirting with Walken, but um, who's to say, really? You know? Yeah. So. From 7 to 10 p.m., the group drank two bottles of wine, two bottles of champagne, um, cocktails that had been sent over by, like, other patrons of the restaurant, and cocktails that they ordered themselves. Michelle said that RJ was acting like a, quote, jealous schmoo. And then, all of a sudden, Natalie got up and threw a wine glass at the wall. Christopher Walken later said that it was his fault because he had been making a toast and it was just a thing that they did where they would break a glass after a toast. So they all broke a glass. But Michelle and Christina say that Natalie was definitely the only one who broke a glass. Hmm. Um, They left at 10 p.m. Everyone was hammered. Natalie couldn't zip up her jacket and she smacked face first into a tiki pole outside. And Michelle and Don Whiting were both concerned and they independently without telling each other called the guard at the dinghy dock to ask him to make sure that they made it back to their boat safely. Yeah. Um, When they got back to the Splendor, Dennis says that Natalie was like all giggly again and palling around with Walken and RJ looked like he was about to explode. Christopher Walken and RJ say that they all went back to the main salon where they continued drinking At first, Christopher Walken was the only one that said that there was any kind of altercation. Um, In his first interview, he said that he and RJ got into a, quote, small beef. And Natalie seemed disturbed after. RJ said nothing about a beef. In his second statement, Christopher Walken said that RJ was complaining that Natalie was away from home too much because she was working and that it was hurting their family. And Walken intervened and was like, she's an actress and like she's important and this is her life and you can't get on her about this. But then he was like, I don't want to get involved. And he stepped outside. And when he came back, everyone was apologizing and he and RJ apologized to each other and everything was fine. And then Natalie went to bed. Dennis's second statement told a similar story. RJ didn't even acknowledge the argument until his second statement. And then Dennis's story about this part changed wildly. Um, he, it changed to that RJ and Christopher Walken actually got into a huge fight that included RJ breaking a bottle of wine and yelling, what do you want to do? Fuck my wife. And then Natalie got so upset about that, that she left and went to her stateroom. Um, The first officer to step on the scene 
reported that he found a broken wine bottle, but RJ was like, I don't know, it was probably from the rough seas. Hmm. So in RJ's first statement, he said that Natalie went to bed around 10.30 p.m., and shortly thereafter, they noticed that both she and the dinghy were missing. In his second statement, he said they had the discussion with, he talked to Christopher Walken, Natalie went to bed, Walken went outside on the deck for a while, and then he and Walken hung out for 15 minutes, and then he went to check on Natalie, and she and the dinghy were gone. At 11.05 p.m. on a boat about 80 feet from the Splendor, um, John Payne, Marilyn Wayne, and their son heard a woman calling for help from the water saying that she was drowning. And they tried for 20 minutes to call the harbor master. They never got through. Um, In that time, they also heard men yelling mockingly, don't worry, we'll help you. So they called Avalon and they said, and Aval- the people at Avalon said they were sending a helicopter. So John and Marilyn stayed on deck while they waited for the helicopter, and they like used the light on their mast to search the water. And they estimated that the voice was coming from their 9 o'clock position, which was where Splendor was moored. But they didn't see a person or a dinghy in the water. The helicopter never came, and at 11.25, the cries stopped. Uh, they called the police on Monday multiple times to report what they heard and no one ever got back to them. God damn it. I know. Just horrifying police work. Just like law. What is law enforcement ever doing? What are they doing? The answer is not a lot. (laughs) Correct. So. RJ's first call to report Natalie missing was at 1.30 a.m. when he used the ship's radio to report that somebody was missing from the boat. Don Whiting, the restaurant manager, happened to be listening on his boat to the radio, and he responded to the audibly drunk RJ, who said, Natalie wasn't on the Splendor. Is she at the bar? And Don was like, the bar's closed. So one of the main questions in this is why, if Natalie disappeared around 1045 and sometimes they said she disappeared around midnight, why it took RJ until 1.30 a.m. to call for help? Mm -hmm. And why did RJ think that Natalie would be at the bar? Well, and on the other boat's timeline, it's like 11-something that she goes missing or that she, you know, is yeah. like their timeline puts her cries stopping at 1125. Yeah. So in the most forgiving estimate, it took him over an hour. A, yeah. An hour and a half to call. So at this time, Paul Wintler, an employee who lived at a campground on shore had been woken up by loud music and also turned his radio on. And he overheard the conversation between Don Whiting and RJ. And RJ was saying he didn't want to involve the Coast Guard because, like, just in case she was just at the bar, which he kept saying. And uh, Wintler offered to help. So, the manager of Doug's Harbor Reef and a campground maintenance guy began the search for international superstar Natalie Wood in the stormy waters off the coast of Catalina Island. 
So Wintler began his search around the shore. Like he walked along the shore, didn't find anything. So he took a harbor patrol boat out to Splendor to talk to RJ, who was, he said, panicky and totally hammered and told him that he and Natalie had gotten in a fight and he wanted to go see if she was at the bar, even though the bar was closed. So he took RJ to shore and he continued looking for the dinghy and for Natalie on the boat. After about 15 minutes, RJ flagged him down from the dock and Wintler took him back to Splendor. And at this point, it was 2.30 in the morning and Wintler was like, we obviously need help. So he and Don Whiting, like I cannot understand why they didn't do this in the first place. They went and woke up the harbor master, Doug Odin, who came to Splendor and he said he saw RJ and Christopher Walken sitting on the deck, having a drink like they were old buddies and that they were so drunk they couldn't talk. Ugh. And RJ continued to give, like, conflicting stories. He told Odin that Natalie would never take the dinghy out at night. But he told Wintler that she took the dinghy out all the time. And that's why he thought she was at the bar. I don't know if you're going to, like, talk about this. But just from, like, the story so far in this one instance, she's never been in the dinghy alone. No. She, no. You're right. In the, the even this weekend, she wouldn't take it alone. That's what I mean. Like, yeah, ju- even just in the story you've told about this weekend, she's never taken it anywhere alone. Correct. So at two forty-five a.m., Odin arranged for five little harbor outboards to search the shoreline. But after forty-five minutes, they didn't have any luck, and he went to RJ and he was like, "We have to call the Coast Guard. I won't name names, but we have to call." So they called the Coast Guard at 3.30 a.m. And the call to the Baywatch lifeguards was made at 5.15 a.m. And the lifeguards called the Avalon Sheriff's Department. And they all came to investigate. RJ told the deputy, Bill Kroll, that they lost Natalie and the dinghy around midnight. And he thought she had gone to the bar. And when she didn't return by 1.30, they radioed to see if anyone saw her. And that's who called the Coast Guard. RJ did not explain what he was doing between the time when Natalie went missing and when he radioed shore. So at this time, the night manager and the cook from Doug's Harbor Reef were getting off work and they spotted the Valiant tangled in some kelp inside a small cave at Blue Cavern Point, which is about a mile and a quarter northeast of the pier at Two Harbors. And they said that when they found the boat, the key was turned off and in neutral and all the oars were in place, which suggests the dinghy was never used. But Hmm. one of the Baywatch lifeguards says that they actually found the dinghy and they swam it out of the cove and that the oars and everything else were in disarray as if someone had been trying to climb on board and that there were scratch marks on the side. We don't know which one is true because... Who's who's telling the truth? We don't know because then somebody took the boat, took the dinghy out to continue looking for Natalie. Fuck, yeah. Yeah. So then at first light, Doug... Sorry, wait, who... Just really quick, who were the two groups of people? So like one of the Baywatch... One of the Baywatch lifeguards says that they found the boat and then the... Um, and it was like in disarray. And then who's the other group of people? The night manager it? and the cook from Doug's Harbor Reef. Okay. 
So then at first light, Doug of Doug's Harbor Reef joined the search and he used his own small boat. And at 7.45 a.m., about 150 yards off of Blue Cavern Point, he saw Natalie's red down jacket, which had ballooned in the water and was buoying up her dead body. Mm -hmm. So an interesting thing to note is that so the police interviewed the three men. You've heard what their statements said. But then when the sheriff asked RJ to identify Natalie's body, he sent Dennis. And I don't really have an explanation for that. Maybe it was too hard for him. Maybe he needed to get out of there, but he did not identify his wife's body. The captain. I mean, yeah, I think. Yeah. My, I mean, it, to me, it just says, like, it's too hard. Like, if, if I were in that position, I'd probably do the same thing. Yeah. True. So, on Monday, November 30th, RJ released a statement through his lawyer, which I'm going to read to you in full because it just makes my head spin. So here's what it says. Mr. and Mrs. Wagner had dinner last night in a restaurant on the Isthmus, after which they returned to their boat. While Mr. Wagner was in the cabin, Mrs. Wagner apparently went to their stateroom. When Mr. Wagner went to join her, he found that she was not there and that the dinghy, a small inflatable boat, was also gone. Since Mrs. Wagner often took the dinghy out alone, Mr. Wagner was not immediately concerned. However, when she did not return in 10 or 15 minutes, Mr. Wagner took his small cruiser and went to look for her. When this proved unsuccessful, he immediately contacted the Coast Guard, who then continued the search and made the discovery early in the morning. And none of that shit is true. Right. None of it. So RJ continued to push this story that, like, Natalie always took the dinghy out, and that's why he wasn't concerned, because she always took the dinghy out alone, even at night, even though she was fucking terrified of water. So that same day, that Monday, the Los Angeles coroner, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, held a press conference to disclose his initial findings because there was such a press storm going on, he wanted to, like, give them something. He said... That Natalie fell off the yacht, perhaps while trying to get onto the dinghy from the swim step at the stern of the boat to separate herself from the group. She then hit her head on either the boat or the dinghy, which resulted in an abrasion on her left cheek, and she fell into the ocean. He said there was no evidence of foul play, and he also said that Natalie's blood alcohol level was 0.14%, and that it may have been a factor in her not being able to save herself. He then accidentally let slip that there had been an argument... And it created a fucking media storm of speculation. And people were like, was there a love triangle going on? I heard Natalie and Christopher Walken had an affair while they were on set. Some people thought that Natalie walked in on Walken and RJ together, which is not outside of the realm of possibility. And so RJ went into total seclusion when he got back. And investigators just like went out and continued to circulate the idea that Natalie often went off in the dinghy alone, which colored a lot of people's opinions of what happened, especially the people working on the case. Natalie's funeral was held on December 2nd, and the honorary pallbearers were Rock Hudson, Frank Sinatra, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Elia Kazan, Gregory Peck, David Niven, and Fred Astaire. 
RJ gave his last interview with investigators on December 4th from his bed in his pajamas. Um, he, he didn't really say anything more than his original statement. And Walken's second and last statement, again, just reinforced what they said, that they both thought Natalie had gone ashore in the dinghy on her own to go back to the bar that was closed. And Dennis's second statement just confirmed what RJ and Christopher Walken said. And on December 11th, Natalie's death was officially ruled an accidental drowning, and the case was closed after 10 days of investigation. Hmm. So everyone who was interviewed, all the witnesses, say they got the same impression, which is that the sheriff's department and the investigators just didn't want to know if anything pointed to anything other than an accidental drowning. And they just, like, wanted it to go away. Um, the Baywatch lifeguard who said that he was the one who brought the dinghy in said he was never even questioned and compared it to the O.J. Simpson investigation. Mm. Um, the lead investigator on the case, who was the one who closed it on December 11th, has said since then, quote, I don't know how Natalie got in the water. And he's yeah. like, so they basically take the opinion, the investigators take the opinion that, like, you know, we don't determine, like, we don't talk theories, like, we don't need to know the why, we just need to know the what. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true at all. So after the original press conference by Dr. Noguchi, the deputy medical examiner, Dr. Joseph Choi, performed the autopsy under Noguchi's supervision. And they found a substantial amount of ocean water in her lungs. And they determined that she probably died of hypothermia within an hour of going into the water. Um, they also found that there were no sleeping pills detected in her system, which means that Natalie hadn't prepared for bed yet because she had taken a sleeping pill every night to go to bed for 28 years. Mm -hmm. They found the aforementioned scrape on Natalie's left cheek. They found a scratch on her left knee and bruises along the right and left front of her leg, as well as both of her feet and a big bruise on Natalie's right arm above the wrist. And despite all of this, they said there was no evidence of foul play, and they failed to take a sample from under Natalie's fingernails. Mm. And on December 27th, RJ released his second and final public statement. And in the statement, he was quoted through a friend, which is pretty weak, saying that he and Walken had a friendly political debate that started at the restaurant and continued onto the boat until Natalie got sick of it and went to bed. And then he offered a new theory, which was that Natalie was bothered by the sound of the rubber dinghy hitting the side of the boat, went to go retie the dinghy, and fell into the water. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. So Dr. Noguchi said that this would explain the bruises on her arm, like if she tried to hook her arm over the side of the dinghy. Um, he also got this guy named Paul Miller, who was a deputy, deputy coroner and their resident, quote, consultant on ocean accidents, who coincidentally was moored near Splendor on Saturday night. And he went and did like a thorough investigation of the boat from like a, a captain's point of view. And an interesting thing that he found 
was that the algae on the swim step was undisturbed. But he said that it was possible that Natalie still tried to fix the dinghy without stepping on the swim step. Um, Natalie's good friend Peggy Griffin also said that a lot of the time when they were like sunbathing on the Splendor, the dinghy banging against the side of the boat would like drive them insane and they would have to like, one of them would have to go retie it and they hated doing it. But then people said like, why, why would Natalie, who was terrified of water, couldn't swim and was like notoriously really careful about boat safety and like would even like make people change shoes so they were wearing safe footwear. Why would she go out in slippers on a rainy night and try to fix the dinghy instead of asking one of the men, one of whom was the captain of the boat, to do it? Yeah. And a lot of people have like personal accounts of witnessing Natalie being terrified of water, even in daylight, like even in like studio pools where they shot, like even then she was like terrified. So the only thing I can think, like if we're just following this logic of like this potential answer is that she was drunk. Yeah, there someone said like, I know Natalie. I I think it was whoever she starred in a movie with where they had to shoot in a tank on on a studio lot. And she it was like daylight and the water was calm and there were like professional divers there with her. And even then she like freaked the fuck out. And he was like, there is no amount of alcohol that I believe would make Natalie would go retie a dinghy in the middle of a rainy night. I have a question and like, I don't know if the, if you have an answer to this, but um, like in order to retie the dinghy, would you have to climb down the like swim ladder essentially? Or like, so I think what it is, is it's like an actual, you know, those like tiny little metal staircases that sometimes bigger boats have on the yeah, back. Yeah. 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 So it was one of those and you had to like go down to the swim step, the bottom step and then untie this very heavy boat and then like yank it in back to the boat and then retie it. Yeah. Which is hard to do, especially in like choppy waters at night. Right. So it's plausible that if she was doing that, she could have easily fallen in and hit her head. Right. But the question is, would she do that? My thought is just why would she be wearing her jacket if she weren't weren't going out for some reason? That's part of the question, is why was she wearing that giant fucking jacket? Because the other thing is, okay, so I guess, like, one possibility is that she was retying the dinghy. Um, RJ thought that maybe she went back to the bar, which we know was closed, but maybe they didn't know it was closed, because most bars in L.A. close at 2, but so, like, maybe they didn't know that the bars on Catalina close earlier or whatever, so... I guess there's a possibility that she was retying a dinghy. Is there a possibility that she was like, I mean, I think you said this earlier, that she like got in the dinghy to go ashore to get away from everybody. And like maybe she was going to the bar or going to get a hotel room for the night or something. Like that's a possibility where she would be wearing her jacket. I think Um, there are two problems with that theory. One is that when they found her, she was in her nightgown. And Natalie was, like, notorious for, like, never going in public. Oh, she was in her nightgown. She was in her nightgown. So she wouldn't have purpose. She wouldn't have gotten into the dinghy to go somewhere. No. But she – so that rules that out, yeah. I feel. She also I, – I know that, it, like, a lot of the it, – it's like, well, maybe she was drunk. Maybe, you know, she was, like, 
you know, she normally wouldn't, but then, like, this is the one time that she did try to take the dinghy out alone. But I just can't see someone who is so afraid of water that even, like, even in the summer when they would, like, moor the boat off the shore of off the coast of Catalina and like the family was like swimming in the water Natalie would not step foot in the water she never ever got in the water so why like it just seems inconceivable to me that she would try to take the dinghy out on a stormy night well so I think we've ruled out the possibility that she would take the dinghy out in her nightgown yeah on a stormy night um but I guess retying it is still on the table yeah, well, there's more. Don't you even worry about it. Okay, great. So, as I said, Dennis's story evolved over the years. He later came out and said that he was a, quote, virtual prisoner in RJ's home for the for months after it happened. And RJ, like, even took him to therapy with him. And he said that before the funeral, he signed a statement confirming the official story of the night and that RJ told him that the FBI would come calling if he ever talked. He did talk for money. Um, He eventually added to his story that at one point before Natalie disappeared, he could hear Natalie and RJ fighting like crazy down in the stateroom and that stuff was getting thrown around. And then the fighting got so crazy that it, they like went out onto the deck. And in one version of the story, he said that the next thing he heard was the dinghy being untied. And then after a while, RJ came back to the bridge at about 11.30 p.m., quote, tousled, sweating profusely as if he had been in a terrible fight or an ordeal of some kind. And originally, that was when Dennis said RJ told him Natalie was missing. Then the story changed to he came back and then he and RJ drank on the bridge until 1.30, which is when RJ went to check on Natalie and said she was gone. Then he said that he was actually the one who went looking for Natalie and noticed the dinghy was gone and that RJ wouldn't let him turn on the lights or engine to go look for Natalie. And while he was giving all these interviews and like dropping all these little pieces of information, he teased that there was a missing piece of the story that would blow everything out of the water and he wouldn't disclose it until he got a book deal, basically. The missing piece allegedly came out in 1992 when Dennis called Lana, Natalie's little sister, and drunkenly told her that Natalie and RJ argued on the deck, and then Dennis saw RJ push Natalie overboard. Mm -hmm. He later denied that and said he didn't know how Natalie got in the water. But Lana swears up and down, Dennis told me he saw RJ push Natalie overboard. Mm-hmm. And then that RJ continued fighting with Natalie from the boat. So she was in the water, like, screaming oh, for shit. help. And he was, which ties into the story of the people who were moored nearby and, the heard, other boat. Yeah. and heard someone mocking the woman in the water. But either way... Whether he pushed her or didn't, Dennis says that RJ knew that Natalie knew was, she in, was the in the water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said that RJ, that Den- Dennis said that he like tried to tell RJ that they needed to go get her. And RJ was like, shut up, leave her there, let her learn a lesson. Um, one of an- another cool get that this author got interview wise was she found 
Dennis's girlfriend at the time. And she said that he called her a number of times after the incident, totally distressed, saying, don't believe anything you see in the press. It's not real. Everyone's been paid off, bribed off, or threatened off. It's all a lie. And then she told the story that Dennis told her then, which is exactly what he told to Lana in 1992. This story is like so muddied for so many reasons. Frank Sinatra actually got Dr. Noguchi fired after his initial press conference. Dennis, as we've seen, is chaotic. Um, the investigators barely did their job. They barely talked to anybody. They turned witnesses away. They disregarded evidence and they closed the case after 10 days. And we still don't know what happened. Mm. And that no. is the end. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's all we have. God, that is so infuriating. Mm-hmm. And then it's like you have these stories coming out, but you can't trust the people who are telling them. Right. It drives me nuts. I agree. what the fuck yeah and i still haven't decided what i think happened yeah it's and how did the dinghy end up so far away i just don't i well currents i guess but who who untied it and why i mean if natalie was trying to retie it and she untied it and was trying to yank it in and pulled herself into the water but then what if RJ was the one who untied it? Why did why, I just? <laughs> well, that's also not like a possibility. I could totally see someone who was drunk and mad whose wife fell into the water or was pushed uh, being like, we'll give you help and untying the dinghy and being like, swim for it or whatever. Oh, like, I don't know. I, I, like, that's interesting. I don't know. Like, I just think, I don't know. Or... Or, I guess, if we want to go down the route of, like, did he have something, like, did he intentionally push her in or whatever, um, that would be, a, like, I don't know. If if we don't know what happened for, like, that whole hour, maybe he untied it and pushed it away to create, oh, like, yeah, to, like, know, make it fake look evidence. like. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't fucking know, man, but it's upsetting. Because wait, who... Because there's two different versions of who even noticed the dinghy was missing, right? Yeah, most of the versions are that RJ noticed, and then Dennis said once one of Dennis's versions was that he was the one who noticed. Mm-hmm. Because if I was trying... If I was trying to make a murder look like an accident, I would untie the dinghy, but then would I point it out, or would I let someone else point it out? You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just trying to think, like... Would I be like, the dinghy's missing. I wonder if... Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he was a very good actor, so maybe he pulled it off. Mm, right. I hate it. I hate it, too. What the fuck? Yeah, it's very upsetting. And uh, where does her, like, family fall on this? Like, so Lana... Does Lana believe... Lana thinks RJ did it. And she's really the only one who has, like, publicly stated her opinion. Right, because I I assume other people are like he's still alive. Yes, he just yeah. So uh, I assume other people are like he he just doesn't talk about it. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Like he just says like it was a tragic thing that happened. (laughs) 
That's true. The question is, like, what happened? Yeah, we know it was tragic, and we know it was a thing, and we know it happened, but, like, what was it, you know? Yeah, the nightgown is what really throws it for me. The, the jacket-nightgown combo. Because yeah. it's like, she clearly went outside on purpose, but... Wow, but, we don't know. Yeah, that's the story of Natalie Wood. Wow. Well, well told, well researched. Thank you. Good choice. I hate it. I hate it. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. I hate it. (laughs) Um, Um, Thank you for listening. Yeah. If you're new, welcome. If you're not new, hi. Bye, I guess. Welcome (laughs) back. Good and bye. Um, (laughs) If you're not new, good. Bye. Um, (laughs) I have a couple of end of show shout outs to listeners who've reached out to us recently with good stories and things um shout outs to vera marie who did an awesome drawing of us that will be on our instagram my heart brandon Catherine, who had the amazing national treasure story peyton yasmina who also does cool art cindy sydney suze b and kaylee thanks you guys for reaching out this week we appreciate and love you all it's true do you have any last words I think I was gonna say no that's all I that's it has taken everything from me uh make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you liked that (laughs) (laughs) if that was fun for you if that was fun for you um you should follow our shit and uh like us (laughs) you should like us (laughs) you should like us you should follow us on TikTok and Instagram. Uh, we, If you came from TikTok, please follow us on Instagram. That's also where we post our updates when new shows come out. Um, and we will be using it more for other things, hopefully, in the near future, too. <laughs> We're trying. Um, and, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Buckle the buck up. Hollywood smooches. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.